The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. I said last week that chapter, chapter 13 was a long chapter compared to chapter 12. So we looked at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 13 last week, if you were not here. And now we're picking up at verse 14, and we're going to go all the way to verse 41. And it is a big chunk, but it's narrative, so it goes rather quickly. And can't break it up really because it's it's a sermon. It's one sermon that Paul or uh, had delivered. That's a, actually a summary and highlight distilled version of his sermon. Sermon could have been longer than what's represented here, but God's Spirit prompted Luke to preserve exactly what God wanted us to know what the high points are in Paul's sermon here. So, for the most part, we're going to be looking at a sermon that Paul preached. So we've got to cover the whole thing, preserve its continuity and also its context. And it's really not that complicated. It's a very simple sermon. So what a great privilege we have to do that. Before we look at our outline and go to the text of Scripture, I had a question here. Raise your hand if you have read... It's kind of a compound sentence. If you've read the book of Acts in its entirety at one point, in your Christian life, meaning all 28 chapters, 28 chapters, and you've even studied it carefully. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever had the privilege of doing that. Okay, I'm actually, I'm not looking at the people raising their hands. I'm people looking at those who aren't. Okay, go ahead and put your hands down. So we have, I mean, from what I could tell, good 50%, maybe more of those of you who didn't raise your hand, meaning um, that maybe you haven't done a very careful, exhaustive study of the book of Acts. Maybe you've read portions here and there, and that's, Pretty normal among a crowd of Christians. And so that's a reminder of what a great privilege it is for us as a church body to go through the whole book of Acts and to do it carefully in context because there's much that we will learn and benefit from as a local church. Many things we've already been able to apply to the local church. And there will be many blessings for you as a Christian. And this will inform your worldview about what it means to be a Christian, an evangelist, a missionary, and so many other blessed truths. So... I hadn't asked that question yet, so I was curious as to where all of us were at here. So let's go ahead and look at the sermon of the day, Acts 13, 14 to 41, which the title I put in there is Paul in Asia Minor, Paul in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, or at least a big chunk of it, Paul in Asia Minor preaching Christ to the Jews. A legitimate title could be. Paul's first missionary journey, part two. Paul in Asia Minor, preaching Christ to the Jews. Because last week was Paul's first missionary journey, part one. Paul and Barnabas in on the island of Cyprus. Because that's what verses 1 through 13 was all about. Now, they went there, they preached, and they're moving on and they're traveling on their missionary journey. Before I get to the details of that, I do want to... Help us out a little bit. Acts can be confusing because there is so much information, so much history, and it's so concise, and big gaps are in between the white spaces of verses and all the unfamiliar geography, all these cities that are named. And many of those cities have new and different names today. So it's easy to get lost in the malaise of all these names and dates and chronology. And So just to kind of orient us, help us out here, Here's a brief chronology of where we're at right now in the book of Acts, chapter 13. Jesus' ascension was about 29 A.D. That's where the book of Acts started. At the same time, the church began. So the church began in 29 A.D. Then about seven years goes by, and then Paul gets saved. He was Saul, the Christian killer, then he gets saved. So church begins, seven years later, Paul gets saved. Immediately, Paul starts teaching and preaching as a brand-new believer but mightily trained in the scriptures. So he gets saved uh, 36 A.D., and then from 36 to 39 A.D., he is for three years in the desert. And we don't know what's going on other than he's receiving revelations from Jesus, and he is preaching the gospel, and he's waiting on God. Then in 39 to 43 A.D., we know that Paul is now has a ministry in Syria, that's north of Galilee, and Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he had a ministry there for at least five years. Again, we don't have a whole lot of details, little snapshots here and there. 
But that's a good five plus years. What is Paul doing? Well, he's seeking the Lord's face. He's getting divine revelation. He's evangelizing everybody that he sees probably. So the church is born in 29 A.D. Paul gets saved in 36 A.D. Paul's doing all this preaching in an obscurity from 36 to 43 A.D. And then in 44 A.D., so this is now almost 15 years after the church was born, uh, Paul goes to the city of Antioch because Barnabas went to get him. So God has a revival in the city of Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, Gentile, cosmopolitan, huge, massive city in the Roman Empire. Barnabas preaches there along with others. The church is exploding. Barnabas is the pastor. He needs help. He can't do a mega church by himself. He thinks, oh, I'm going to go get Saul, who is Paul, and he can help me pastor and shepherd this church. So that's what Barnabas does. And he goes and he finds Saul, who is hidden in obscurity, brings him back to Antioch. And Barnabas and Saul or Paul are the pastors of that church for an entire year. All they did was teach the people and God continued to grow that church and they raised up leadership and three other men were added to the leadership team so that you have five guys at that church in Antioch. Five, did you know they had a five guys at Antioch 2000 years ago? A five guys. Anyway, um, so Paul and Barnabas serving faithfully there. 44, this is 15, 16 years later. And then after 15, 16 years after the church began, uh, 10 years after Paul got saved, now God is going to call Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey in the history of the world, in the history of the church. And so we are now, context here, Acts 13 and 14 is Paul's first missionary journey, covering the time span 46 A.D. to 48 A.D., so roughly around a two-year trip. Then after this trip, they're going to go back home to their home church in Antioch, give a report, and at some point within the next year, Paul wrote one of the first books in the New Testament called Galatians. So in 49 A.D., Galatians, because we're going to see today, actually, Paul and Barnabas go to Galatia for the first time to preach. So 49 A.D., Paul writes Galatians, and then 64 A.D., Luke writes this book of Acts, the historical account. So that's a brief chronology. Now, by way of reminder, setting the context again, let me tell you briefly about Acts 13 and 14. They go together. When Luke wrote it, it wasn't chapter 13 and then he wrote stuff in verse 1 verse 2 when luke wrote he didn't use numbers in terms of chapter divisions or verse breaks probably paragraphs they did write in paragraphs in his language whether it was greek probably but when he wrote it chapter 13 and 14 was supposed to go together because that was paul's first missionary trip so that's the context uh, this is paul's first missionary trip chapter 13 and 14 it is paul's Shortest of his three formal missionary trips. On this first missionary trip, it's Paul and Barnabas and John Mark who are on the trip. Could have other associates with them. Very possible. Very likely knowing the way Paul did ministry. John Mark bails halfway through the trip or deserts them. In this trip, Paul and Barnabas hit at least eight major cities. At least those are the ones mentioned in chapter 13 and 14 where they preached and served. They cover at least 1,235 miles on this trip. If you have a map in your Bible, that's always helpful to follow along to see where they're going. On this missions trip, they were sent by the church. Their, sending, their missionary sending agency was the local church by design, by God's design. What were they doing on their missions trip? One thing. Very laser-like, narrow. They went on a missions trip to preach the gospel and plant churches. That was it. And we're going to see that modeled in Paul's sermon today when he hits the Gentile city. That's what they did on missions trips in the Bible. They preached the gospel. They didn't do anything else. They were not mercenaries. They weren't going to other foreign places and forcing their culture upon other people. They weren't violent. They were going to preach the gospel. Very simple. And then what was their strategy? Well, for Paul and his calling, a little different than Peter's, he was called to go to the non-evangelized world, to go where no man had gone before. And that's what Paul did. And so he does this. 
He goes to Cyprus on the island there. It hadn't been evangelized with biblical Christianity yet, so they went there and covered over 100 miles and gave the gospel at the beginning of chapter 13. Then from there, they travel 170 miles across the sea, very dangerous, up north. And they're going to go into the area there of South Asia Minor and begin preaching the gospel in all these cities that are non-evangelized, unevangelized. Snippets of truth had reached the shores and the land there from Jews who'd been traveling. Stories about John the Baptist, apparently disciples of John the Baptist made it all the way from Jerusalem up north, across over through Asia Minor and all the way over to Ephesus going to, to Greece. And this is 16 years after the church began. So stories about Jesus, stories about Paul, at least traveled through the network of the Jewish community. Many of the Gentiles totally oblivious to anything about Christianity, the Bible. They hadn't been uh, hearing it from local Jews. So their strategy was go to non-evangelized areas, go to highly Gentile areas, because Paul was called to do that very thing, go to the Gentiles primarily. But he would. his strategy became he's going to go to the Jews first, wherever he could, in the synagogue, and then he would go to the Gentiles. His focus was on Gentiles, but it was always through the front door of the synagogue to the Jews and launch out from there. And that was God's design. Also, regarding the strategy of their first missionary journey, this is fascinating because when you try to you study, okay, what chapter was the first missionary journey? Wait a minute. And when did the second one begin and end? And wait, what cities did they cover? What countries did they go to? Wait, what happened? It just gets all muddled in your mind. So this is helpful. Chapter 13 and 14 is the first missionary journey. And their strategy, in hindsight, as I look at it, was in God's sovereignty, Paul and Bonnerus are like, okay, we got the whole world to cover. Where shall we go? I mentioned this last week. Barnabas was from Cyprus, so that is the first place they go, the island of Cyprus. That was his playground as a boy growing up. All 140 miles of it. And so that's where they go. This is familiar territory. Barnabas knows where to go. He knows where the nooks are and the crannies are and the cul-de-sac and who needs to hear it and where the hot spots are and his family and friends and relatives. Very strategic. So they go first to Barnabas's neighborhood in Cyprus. Now, today we're going to see after they go to Barnabas's neighborhood, they're going to go to take a wild guess. Paul's neighborhood. Where was Paul from? He was born and raised in Tarsus, which is in Asia Minor. And that's exactly way that where they are headed now. So that the culmination or the end of first missionary journey pretty much ends down south, very close to Tarsus in Asia Minor, the area where Paul was born and raised and grew up. And this is going to be familiar territory to the Apostle Paul, because not only did he grow up in Asia Minor, but also after he became a Christian in his obscurity, he did much ministry in Cilicia, which is in Asia Minor, which intersects with where they are in their missionary journey towards the end. So that is not coincidental, I don't think. This is very strategic. So that's where we are. So hopefully that helps in terms of the context. So now let's go to this amazing second leg of this missionary journey and the powerful sermon that Paul delivers. Let's go ahead and look at it. I broke it up into three sections to help us move through the text. Point number one is 14 through 22. And I call it the historical preparation. So Paul and Barnabas, like I said, they leave the island of Cyprus. They go through the choppy, dangerous, shark-infested, pirate-infested waters of the Mediterranean Sea, going up north till they hit the coast to Atalia, and then they end up going north to uh, the city of Perga. And then they're going to end up in this city called Antioch of Pisidia, or Antioch really of Galatia, not the same as the Antioch of Syria, where they originally came from, so... Two Antiochs. There were two Antiochs. Yes, there were about 12 cities called Antioch in that day. Why? Because this very arrogant, pompous dude who was in charge, who conquered all these lands, named all the cities after himself. Oh, here's the first city. Hey, I'll name it after myself, Antioch. Oh, here's the second city. I'll name, what should, oh, I'll name that one Antioch. And he went on for about 13 cities. So that's why it's called Antioch. So that's where we are today. And then Paul and Barnabas get there. Paul gets the sovereign, providentially placed opportunity to preach the gospel. And he does. And we're going to see that he gives a historical preparation, laying the groundwork to settle a context about who Jesus is so that the Jews can understand it in its fullness. The historical preparation, we'll look at that. God cared for the Jews. That's one of his main points. And then point number two, we'll look at verses 23 to 25 after he lays the foundation, is the divine incarnation. 
Paul explicitly starts talking about Jesus Christ by name to the Jews, to Orthodox Jews. This is a risky prospect. It was 2000 years ago. It is a risky prospect today. When you mention the name of Jesus Christ to Orthodox Jews who are not Christian, many times that makes them uncomfortable. Many times that makes them angry. Nevertheless, Paul is going to mention the divine incarnation, a startling reality that the Jews of Paul's day did not understand, and that is that God became a man. That's what the Bible teaches. That is what Christianity teaches. That is the unique distinctive of Christianity. God became a man. Did you know, for the most part, throughout history, every other religion on planet Earth, every false religion believes just the opposite, that man can become a God. Christianity says God became a man. And that's this point of emphasis. And then finally, uh, we'll look at 26 to 41, the gospel proclamation, where he delineates in detail the simple, beautiful truths of the saving gospel. Ending with an uh, explanation point that salvation is a gift from God. So let's go ahead and look at, as Paul and Barnabas continue their missionary trip, first with the historical preparation, starting at verse, I'm going to start at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John Mark, who was with them, left. He left Paul and Barnabas in Perga just before they get to Antioch up north. So this is in Asia Minor. It's the, the big region there is called Asia Minor. And then they're broken up into provinces, and one of those provinces is called Galatia. And then in the uh, col- uh, in that side, going down smaller, there are colonies or little cities. So that's how it's broken up. So in Asia Minor, near Galatia, in one of the cities, John Mark, according to verse thing, he left Paul and Barnabas. He left the missionary trip. By the way, they were sent from Antioch, and he goes back to Jerusalem. So John Mark, when he left, he didn't go back to Antioch where he was sent from. He didn't go back and give a missionary report to those who sent him to tell him how it went. He just bailed short-circuited and went back to Jerusalem. That's where his mom was. That's where his home was. He went back home is what happened. And much speculation as to why he left. It should be pointed out, I didn't mention this last week, the word left in verse 13 is not the normal word for just kind of passively leave or just normally leave. They left the room to go to their house. That is not the word. It's a unique word. It's a rare word. And many times when it is used, it talks about demons leaving a human body after they possessed it. The demons left with a, shriek that's the same word john mark left like a demon whatever that means another not on good terms we know this from chapter a little later we're going to see it so he bails uh so it's paul and barnabas and maybe by themselves or with somebody and now they're going to travel up further verse 14 so going on from the city of perga which is close to the coast it says they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. So now they travel about 110 miles north to Pisidian Antioch. And it says it so nonchalantly. And they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch was like um, 365,000, uh, thousand, actually it's 3,600 feet above sea level, meaning it's very high in the sky. And all these narrow mountains that are very dangerous with nooks and crannies. In other words, and they just reach head on into this plateau and it's like, how in the world did they scale that and get up there? It was arduous. It was difficult even today to get up there, but they managed to do it. So they traveled for quite some time probably to get up there. And so they did. And they, but that was their destination. And that's where they're going to be. And that's where the synagogue is. And that's where Paul's going to preach his sermon. Pisidian Antioch. And so they finally arrive. And then, who knows, maybe they were there for a couple days to have some rest. And then the Sabbath day rolls around, verse 14, which is Saturday. Saturday is the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath always in the Bible, when it refers to a literal day. Exodus chapter 20, honor the Sabbath day. Saturday, God told Moses to tell the Jews. Just wanted to clarify that, because there are times where Christians are confused about that. I continue to have Christians ask me, Pastor Cliff, how come we don't have church on the Sabbath day? Or how come we don't celebrate the Sabbath? Actually, it's why don't we have church on the Sabbath day, meaning why don't we have church on Saturday? And the other question is, how come we don't celebrate the Sabbath? 
And the New Testament answers that very clearly, as did Jesus. Jesus came and he fulfilled the requirements of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. He is the one who gives rest by salvation in him. Why do we celebrate church? Why do we do church on Sunday? Because the apostles established that precedent to celebrate resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we have church on Sunday. And then Paul even says in Colossians, don't allow anybody or fellow Christians to try to force you, coerce you legalistically to celebrate church on Saturdays in light of the Old Testament. That was a shadow. Christ is the reality. So we, we have church on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here the Apostle Paul, on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, he went into the synagogue and sat down. So there is a synagogue here in the city, which is in the Gentile world, the Hellenized Greek world. Their main language is Greek. It is not Aramaic and Hebrew like it is down in Jerusalem. There are, there are some Jews sprinkled throughout this city, but primarily it's a Gentile, massive cosmos. Well, in that area of southern Galatia, it was one of the larger cities there. It was a Roman city. So people there spoke uh, Latin and a variation of that. Just about everybody probably spoke Greek. And there may have been other languages. There There were the Phrygians there. That was a race of people, whatever they spoke. Some Oriental uh, peoples were also there. So you have a lot. It's a multicultural city. Hebrew and Aramaic is not the dominant language, but Paul makes a purpose to first go into the synagogue. So there are Jews there, and there are enough Jews to actually have a synagogue. And in that day, we believe that you had to have about 10 or a dozen to get a synagogue started in any city. Actually, 12 to start one, and if you ever have a, want to have a formal service, you have to have 10 people present to do it. And so there is a synagogue, so that means there are a number of Jews, and they've been there for quite some time, and... Paul's strategy, he is a Jew. He's probably dressed as a Jew. He's probably dressed as a rabbi, his garb, because he's noticed by fellow Jews. He was a, a scholarly Pharisee. And he's probably wearing the appropriate garments that reflect that. So him and Barnabas, who are both Jews, they go to the synagogue. They are welcome because they're fellow Jews. They welcomed people from uh, beyond their city all the time. If they were fellow Jews, they'd go in. By the way, the synagogue, the synagogue is not in the Old Testament. A synagogue is not found in the Mosaic law. God never told Moses to build synagogues for the Jews. The first time we read about synagogues is in the New Testament in the days of Jesus. So synagogues didn't exist in the Old Testament. God never commanded the Jews to build synagogues and use them. Then we go to the New Testament. All of a sudden, there are synagogues all over the place. You're thinking, well, wait a minute. God didn't can't command the Jews to build synagogues. Is, is that okay for them to be using synagogues, meeting in synagogues, praying in synagogues, teaching in synagogues? Apparently the answer is yes, because Jesus went to synagogue. Luke chapter 4, one of the first things Jesus ever did in his public ministry was teach in a synagogue. Jesus never condemned the existence of synagogues. So it was a artifice or a human construct over time to meet a practical need where Jews could gather probably happened during the days of the Babylonian captivity where they were away from their homeland, away from the temple, and believing Jews wanted to get together under the persecution of Bab uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so they started to huddle around, and then eventually they'd build little buildings for this, and this became the synagogue. And in a synagogue, a synagogue was actually a building. It wasn't a home. It had places to sit. It had a podium like this. We even see that begin in Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And primarily what they did in the synagogue was Jews would gather together who believed in Yahweh to read the word of God in the Old Testament and to teach the word of God. That was the main function. Then with time it expanded and they would actually say a prayer. They'd have specific prayers like the Shema from Deuteronomy. And beyond teaching, then there was preaching devotionally added to it with time. So in the days of Jesus, you had these synagogues where Jews met many times on the Sabbath for formal reading of the Old Testament scriptures. And preaching, and one person would get up and actually preach and teach on the Old Testament scriptures. And they'd also have prayer time. And, and they had places to sit. And it wasn't just men. And it was a learning place. Children, women were allowed to be learning the word of God. That was distinctive of the Jews. 2,000 years ago, in the then known world for the most part, women were not allowed to learn in other communities religions, ethnicities. It was just the men and just the elite men. The Jews were totally different. Education was required 
of everyone, including children and women. So they were literate as God desired. And so that's the synagogue. And so the synagogue existed. They were used by Jesus. They were tolerated and allowed and even blessed by Jesus and the apostle Paul and the other apostles. They used the synagogues and get this. The synagogue became the model of the Christian church. So actually many of the features we have, we have a building. It's separate from the home. There is a podium. We read the word of God. We say prayers. We invite all of God's people, men, women, and children to learn the word of God and to pray. And those are our priorities. That is not by coincidence. Somebody didn't just invent that after the church started. That came right out of Jewish worship in the synagogues. So continuity of God's people is preserved in that manner. So that's very instructive for us. And so that's Paul's goal. We're going to teach in the synagogue. He's got a captive audience, by the way. He's going to preach the Old Testament scriptures and the Jews welcome the Old Testament scriptures. So verse 14, Paul goes into Antioch, goes into the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath day. Him and Barnabas, they sit down probably in the back of the building as guests. Then they have their formalities, whoever's in charge. The elders, get this, were in charge of the worship of the synagogue. The elders were in charge of the worship of the synagogue. That is also preserved into the local church for us. So the elders or whoever there who's in charge, they read the law and the prophet. They read the scriptures. They read it publicly for the people to hear it. The synagogue officials sent to Paul and Barnabas. Oh, we, oh we've got guests. Oh, Jewish brethren. Men we haven't seen before. Apparently a scholar, this apostle, this, this Paul fellow. He looks like a Pharisee. We should ask him and invite. That was customary, by the way, if there were guests who were qualified to invite them to teach and preach in the synagogue. And that's exactly what they do for Paul. So the elders of the synagogue, they ask Paul, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Do you have a word from the Lord? Do you have a word of exhortation? And Paul's saying, oh, boy, do I have a word of exhortation. But remember, he has already been chased out of the city of Jerusalem as a Christian, threatened with death because he was giving a word of exhortation to his fellow Jews about who Jesus was. Remember? And Peter said, get out of here. He was there for two weeks. And then he's in obscurity, hiding, getting trained, preaching, probably getting chased all over. So Paul's going to bring the word of it. So bring it, brother. Say it. Verse 16, Paul stood up. And so that's how they did it in the synagogue, at least in Gentile synagogues. You read the word of God. And then when whoever's ready to teach, they stand up. And Pastor Cliff, why do you stand up when you preach? Because Paul did it right here. That's why. This was customary. Proclaiming the word of God to God's people. Nehemiah did this as well. Or Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. Stood up behind the lectern and preached the word of God, as all the people in the congregation said, amen. By the way, that was routine in the synagogues, that the people would respond by saying, amen, only when it was appropriate. So Paul stood up, he stood up, uh, verse 16, and motioning with his hand, this probably means, okay, settle in, quiet down, like, you know, when our usher rings the bell, ding, 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 church is starting. Kind of like when Peter went, shh, in Acts chapter 12. We are now going to read the word of God. Reverence people, quiet people, because the, the synagogue was a place of all kinds of business, of interaction, of talk, of counsel, of commiserating. So it could have a loud noise at different points. So Paul said, now we need to focus on the word of God. He stood up, motioning with his hand, and he starts out with a very courteous standard greeting. These are Jewish people, Jewish men, Jewish leaders, Jewish women, significant Jewish women who are also in attendance, maybe with their younger ones. And it says, men of Israel and you who fear God. Men of Israel included the women as well. That was a standard greeting. Men of Israel. Those were Jews who had been circumcised, who believed in the Old Testament, who believed in Yahweh. But then also he addresses the other people who were there who are not Jewish. And they are Gentile people, not Jewish. And he calls them those who fear God. God fears. Attention, fellow Jews, and also God fears. A, a God fearer was a Gentile who wasn't circumcised but believed in Yahweh and went to synagogue, wanted to learn the truth about God from his word, but they hadn't fully adopted the faith yet by way of circumcision. But they're there. So it's a mixed crowd. And he says, listen, verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out 
from it. Just so you know, over the next several verses, concentrate and listen as we go over these verses of how God is doing everything. And that's the way Paul presents this. Paul doesn't know these Jews. At this point, he has no common ground with them. He definitely doesn't have common ground spiritually because he is a born-again Christian who believes in Jesus Christ as Messiah. His audience does not. He also knows the prospect that we've got some hardcore Orthodox Jews in the audience and they are going to be resistant and even angry when I start talking about the Christian Jesus. No doubt after 15, 16 years, they have heard how their fellow leadership Jews, the Sanhedrin down in Jerusalem, had been persecuting this cult of people called the Christians. So Paul can't start out with his Christian message. He lays the foundation, preparing the way with biblical truth rooted in the Old Testament scriptures that they said they embraced and believed. That's why he starts out that way. And he's talking about God, Yahweh, the same God we all here profess. That is the common ground. Yahweh, our God, our creator, our savior, or so they believed. Also, the Old Testament scriptures, that was the common ground. That's how he started. This is very strategic by Paul. He knows his audience, generally speaking, that they are Jews. Yet unbelieving Jews, for the most part, up to this point. And that's why he says men of Israel. So he, there's identity there there is solidarity there i am one of you you are one of we are brethren here as far as that goes in terms of israelites or those who believe in yahweh let's talk about this yahweh who is the common god of us all all of us here aside from all the pagans outside the doors here in this culture who don't believe in yahweh the god of this people israel our god yahweh chose our fathers god chooses election is true and paul highlights there this was Encouraging and confirming for the Jews listening. Yes, indeed, our God, the great Yahweh, he is sovereign. He is in charge. He chooses. He is in charge. He elects his people. And the Jews sitting in the audience, they knew that God chose Abraham sovereignly. They knew that God chose the patriarchs. They knew that God chose the nation of Israel to be his people. So they believed in election. And it wasn't based on anything Abraham did good. It was God's sovereign choice. That's how he refers to God. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, the patriarchs. This is all common ground. And he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And they're all saying, amen. We are Jewish brethren, our descendants. They were persecuted. They went down to Egypt of 74 people. And God blessed and turned it into 2 million Israelites in the land of Egypt. And God created a nation from 70 people to 2 million. By the time Moses came into existence, fulfilling the promise God made to Abraham, I will make you one man, a great nation, the nation of Israel. And that promise was fulfilled down as slaves in Egypt. And that's what it means when God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm. So the time goes by. God increases and creates the nation of israel they are still in slavery for 100 years they are being oppressed and god their god is going to hear their cry he's going to set them free at the end of verse 17 and with an uplifted arm that means with god's strength yahweh's strength his personal care he led the jews out of slavery out of egypt through the exodus and eventually into the promised land. And they're all saying, amen. We like this guest preacher. Verse 18, for a period of about... Now Paul goes into Old Testament history. From Genesis, pretty much, to the end of the Old Testament. Paul refers to explicitly, or by allusion, about 20 Old Testament books in this brief survey of the Old Testament. It's amazing. This is a thoroughly biblical sermon. Verse 18, for a period of 40 years... God put up with them in the in the wilderness. That's a, it's a very uh, complimentary term. What God put up with them? In other words, the, the Jews, God's people who were called by God, elected by God, given promises by God, during the wilderness for 40 years, the Jews were sinning against God. They were rebelling against Yahweh. There are many times God could have wiped them out, snuffed them out because of their sin. There are times where God did snuff some of them out, and there were times where God wanted to snuff all of them out, and Moses got down on his knees and interceded for his people. God, don't wipe out your people. And God relented from his wrath. So for 40 years, God had to put up with these sinful, wicked, evil rebels that he called his own, that he called his children. They were incredibly sinful, incredibly. You know, and God could say the same about us as Christians. 
We are his children, yet we rebel. We are his children, yet we presume upon his grace. We are his children, yet we do stupid, horrible, and even wicked, evil things as his children who are believers. And God can look down on us and say, you know what? I have put up with the church for 2,000 years. I have put up with you, McManus, since you got saved when you were 19. I have put up with you, meaning I have forgiven you. I tolerate you. The grace of God uh, shadows upon you. The blood of Jesus covers your sin. I continue to put up with you out of my grace and my mercy. That's what that means. This is a very gracious, loving, patient God. That's the God of the Bible. And that is the God that the Jews should have been familiar with in their Old Testament. God put up with them. Verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations, so God leads them into the promised land, just as he said he would. I will give you this land, the land of Canaan, the land of promise. The land will be yours and it will be yours in perpetuity. The land will be yours and it will be your land forever. This is an everlasting covenant, Abraham, that I am making to you. I am giving the land in the Middle East called the promised land, Canaan, Palestine, to the Jews forevermore. It is an everlasting covenant. That's exactly what God did. God gave it to the Jews. He intended it to be the Jews belong to them forever. The Jews are still in the land to this day, not in their fullness, not in full obedience, but they will be someday in the future. That's the book of Revelation. That's Romans 9 through 11. There is no question from the Bible about who the Middle East belongs to today. Who Palestine? Does it belong to the Palestinians or does it belong to the Jews? It belongs to the Jews, according to God in the Bible. It's not confusing. And Palestinians are not Palestinians. Palestinians are Arab Muslims from many different Arab countries. They're not indigenous historically to that land. Just read the Bible, the Old Testament. You will see that clearly and it will remove all the confusion. And God promised to give them the promised land. And so he did. And Moses died and then God led them into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And over the course of about 10 years, they took the north and they took the south. And they removed all these wicked nations that really were a cancer on planet Earth. That's how wicked and evil they were. And God said, remove them destroy them they are evil they can't be salvaged and you read that in the old testament verse 19 when god had destroyed the seven nations in the land of canaan what seven they're mentioned in the old testament exodus through deuteronomy the hittites the girgashites the amorites the canaanites the perizzites the hivites and the jebusites real peoples israel took all the land left some of those foreigners in the land And God distributed their land as an inheritance, fulfilling the promise, all of which took place about 450 years, 400 years of slavery, 40 years in the desert, 10 years to take the land, ballpark figure about 450 years. Verse 20, after these things, God gave the Jews judges or Israel's judges. So after Joshua, you've got about a three to 400 year period and God gives judges who are also called saviors, if you will, and they were civil and political leaders, also spiritual. And now you've got the book of Judges, where the Jews are all over the promised land, the Israelites. They're broken up into 12 tribes, and they're still sinners, so they're becoming disobedient. They need oversight. They need people in charge. They need people to refocus their attention to the priorities of Yahweh. And so God has to keep raising up judges because the Israelites kept doing what was right in their own eyes. And so the judges that God sent set them straight. There were 12 judges that God sent. That's all in the book of Judges. There were 12 of them, six minor ones, six major ones. And they were blessed in the days of a judge if they heeded the voice of the judge. And you know those stories from the Old Testament. Uh, The major judges, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, female, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, they were blessed by God and they served the people. And every one of those people... They were sinful. They weren't perfect. Yet they had faith in God. So that was the day of the judges. God watched over them. And yet Israel continues to be rebellious and sinful. All the while God, they're his people. He's trying to take care of them. And yet they resist. They are wicked. They are evil. They are sinful. Yet God is patient and merciful with his people. That's what Paul's trying to highlight here is, yeah, you Israelites, God does love you. He did elect you, you Jews. You have identity with him. 
But you're just like your ancestors. They were just pathetically sinful and continuously rebellious, rebellious against God all the time. And yet God continues to come back and woo his people to himself, being gracious, being merciful, being forgiving. And so that's, that will, that's what Paul is trying to emphasize, that you are sinners in need of spiritual salvation. That is his, one of his main themes. Do you understand? Here's the history of the Jews. It is objective in your own holy scriptures. God is holy. We are sinful. So he's going to keep arguing this truth. And they have the judges up until Samuel, the prophet. And at that time, kings enter in to rule over Israel. Verse 21, Saul and David and Solomon. And then they asked for a king. God gave them a king. So God does everything throughout this. But God is sovereign. He's control. He elected he gave them the promised land. He rescued them from slavery. He gives them a king. He watches over them. God gives them what they want. Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Saul was king for 40 years. He was a compromiser. He was so wicked that God finally removed him and replaced him with David. David loved God. David knew God. Yet David was frail. He was a sinner. He messed up. And yet God forgave him. Verse 22, and after God had removed Saul, king, he raised up David, the rightful king, the great-great-great-grandfather of the Messiah to come, who would be the Savior. So he raised up David, verse 22, to be their king, concerning whom God also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. David loves me. He desires the things that I desire deep in his soul, even though he's a sinner. That's what that means, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Despite his sin, he wants to do the will of God. That's David. Genesis 49 predicted that the Messiah would come from the loins of the tribe of Judah. David was from the tribe of Judah. That's where the Messiah would come from. So that's the preparation. And he's, Paul is highlighting God chose Israel. God loved Israel. God selected Israel. God provided for Israel. God made many promises to Israel. God continued to show grace and mercy and forgiveness towards Israel despite their sin. Israel was very sinful. Those are your fathers. That's where we come from. That's who we are. Sinful people forgiving God. And God raised up David to bring the Messiah, a savior for Israel and for the world. Now he transitions after laying the, the groundwork. And now that's point number two, the divine incarnation, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Verse 23. So from the descendants of this man, from David, the second king of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, where God promised that through the line of Judah would come the Messiah. Messiah is anointed one. A Messiah, according to the Old Testament, was like a king, a ruler, a judge, a protector, a provider, a savior. All of those things wanted to a military leader, a warrior, a politician or a government ruler defending the cause of Israel and a literal man with great power. That's the portrait in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. So when Jesus comes along, born in obscurity from the city of Nazareth, and then he comes along publicly, and he's meek and mild, He's not a powerful, strong warrior, politician with any prestige. And he has a small cloud, a crowd of 12 hayseed, backwood Galilean guys with him who didn't come from the elitist area of Jerusalem. And so the Jewish leadership looked at that, the Sadducees, Pharisees, and all the Jews like, and you're, you're claiming to be the Messiah? This doesn't match up with the Old Testament. And the greatest stumbling block for the Jews in Jesus' day and Paul's day was the idea that the Messiah, the great Messiah, the great deliverer would actually die. They didn't register that. It was in the Bible, but it, they were not thinking that. They weren't thinking the Messiah had to die. They just blotted that out. The, they thought one thing, the Messiah will come to conquer. The Messiah will come to deliver. The, the Messiah will come to overthrow the Romans. That's the only thing they were thinking. So that's why Paul's going to emphasize the death of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah out of the Old Testament. Jews, come on, you should know that. It's in your Bible. 
His death, not only that, his resurrection. That's where he overcomes. That's where he becomes the great conqueror. And so the Jews, they are kind of oblivious to that. They hadn't been paying attention. They didn't want to hear anything about the death of a Messiah, especially a death who gets crucified on a tree because the Jews knew Deuteronomy chapter 21 where it said, cursed is he who was hanged on a tree. Curse, absolutely anathema, unclean. The idea that a Messiah would be crucified on a tree was absolutely despicable in their mind. And that made Jesus a blasphemer because there's no way God would make him the Messiah because he was cursed by the prophecy in Deuteronomy because he hung on a tree. He was dirty. So they denied all these truths. Hence his point of emphasis for the rest of the sermon. Look at verse 23. From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise in your Old Testament, God has brought to Israel a savior. And finally, for the first time, Jesus says, I mean, Paul says Jesus, his name is Jesus. And you can imagine the Jewish synagogue audience there when they heard the word Jesus. Many of them probably (gasps) didn't know what to do. Shocked, panicked, disgusted. How dare he? But he says it. The savior, a savior, Jesus. Remember, they're Jews. Isaiah said, there's only one savior and it is Yahweh. There's only one savior and it is almighty God. And then Paul says, there's a savior of Israel. His name is Jesus. Utter blasphemy in the minds of many of these Jews when they hear that. Verse 24, and after John the Baptist had proclaimed before Jesus' coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. They no doubt heard about this John the Baptist fella who got murdered. And Paul sets the record straight. John, John the Baptist was sent from God. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He prepared the way of the true Messiah of Israel. And one of his requirements was to repent and be baptized, to repent and be baptized. And we know from the Gospels that the Pharise- none of the Pharisees responded to John the Baptist's message. They refused to get uh, repent and they refused to get baptized. They needed to repent. Of their- In other words, repent means acknowledge your, that you are a sinner. Acknowledge that you need a spiritual savior. Acknowledge that you are corrupt in and of yourself. Many of them, they were unwilling to do that. Verse 25, and while John was, the Baptist was completing his course and his ministry, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one who is coming after me. So the Jews kept asking, John, you got all these crowds and this public attention and everybody loves you. And who are you? The Jewish leadership said. Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? And John publicly said, I am, I am not. I am not he. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. But behold, one is coming, the Messiah, after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. A slave, a lowly slave, was responsible for undoing the sandals of his master, getting down on his knees and undoing his sandals or putting his sandals on. That's what a slave was. And John is saying, I am less than a slave. Compared to Jesus, I am less than a slave. And really, this John is alluding to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just Messiah. He is God in human flesh, as Scripture had predicted. And again, this would cause the ire of many of the Jews listening to the audience. You're saying Jesus is the Savior. We need to repent and that this Jesus is the true Messiah who's greater than a man? How dare you? Some would believe, but some would be filled with indignation. And so then... Now Paul is going to go on and he's going to apply the details of the gospel regarding this Jesus. That's verse 26 to 41. Let's read it. And that's the gospel proclamation. Salvation is a gift. So now Paul's just going to get very specific about the gospel. Brethren, brethren. So he's probably calming them down. A preemptive, encouraging word. Brethren, sons of Abraham, and those of you who fear God. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent to the Jews. The message of salvation. So this is the gospel. Gospel means good news. That's his point of emphasis. And Paul's going to explain, well, what is the message of salvation? Well, here it is, verse 27 and on. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him the savior so the sanhedrin the leadership of the the jews down in jerusalem that used so much respect they were wrong they saw jesus they heard him proclaim when he said he was the messiah savior of the world they rejected that they condemned him called him a liar and yet he says paul says 
And this was fulfilling prophecy. That's also the rejection of the Messiah is predicted in your Old Testament scriptures. So Paul keeps going back to scripture, back to scripture. Look in your own Bible. It is there. That the Messiah would be crucified. Verse 28. And though they found no ground for putting Jesus to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Pilate said six times, I find no fault in him. And yet he was executed, crucified on a cross, fulfilling the curse of Deuteronomy. Verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning Jesus. So everything about his death was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. They should have known that this synagogue of Jews in Antioch should have. They knew all these prophecies. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Genesis 3:15. The Messiah must suffer death. They don't want to hear it. Yet they carried out all that was written concerning the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies. They took him down from the cross, or better, the tree is the word, not cross. The tree, and then they buried him in a tomb. Dead. Well, God can't die. The Old Testament says that. God can't die. Well, Paul's not done. But God raised him from the dead. He came back to life, the resurrection. And now... Five times, Paul is going to tell his Jewish audience emphatically that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised. He says it five times, and then he quotes two scriptures to prove that he was raised from the dead. Seven times, Paul tells this audience, Jesus was raised from the dead. Why did he need to do that? Because it was a stumbling block to the Jews that the Messiah would die. So they need to be reminded, scripture says he would also rise from the dead, proving he is your Messiah. So now he's going to talk about the importance of the resurrection in the gospel that verifies that Jesus is indeed the savior of the world. God raised him from the dead. Verse 30, verse 31. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who came upon him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to these people. So 40 days he appeared before his ascension. Verse 32. And Paul says, we preach to you the good news, this message of salvation. Me and my friend Barnabas here, we are here. We are sent by God to give you the good news, the, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament that you have been looking for, the forgiveness of sin, spiritual life, knowing Yahweh for eternity. That's the good news. It was a promise made to your fathers. This is not foreign. It shouldn't be. Verse 33. And that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised Jesus up just as is written in the second psalm. Jesus is alive. He reigns as king. He will take over the world. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 34. As for the fact that he God raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay. God has spoken in this way. And then he quotes Psalm or Isaiah 55 verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So God would bless his people through the risen Messiah. That's what that means. Isaiah 55 verse 35. He quotes more scripture. Therefore, God also says in another Psalm, God says in Psalm 16, when Psalm 16, when you read Psalm 16, it is God talking. God says, therefore, God says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So God predicted in the Old Testament, the Messiah would be raised from the dead. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Verse 36, for David, who wrote this Psalm after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. David died and never rose again from the dead because David wasn't writing about himself. He was writing about the coming Messiah. David was laid among his fathers and he underwent decay. Verse 37, but the Messiah, Jesus, whom God raised, did not undergo decay. He fulfilled Psalm 16, a thousand years before he was born. Verse 38, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, in light of these great truths, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That is the message of salvation. That is the good news. It is the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did on the cross and his resurrection. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from all these. things. It's just by believing in the gospel. It's not by your works, not by trying to fulfill the Mosaic law because they were legalists. It's by the free gift of the gospel message from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. You can't earn your way to heaven. That's what Paul is saying. This is foreign to them. It's in their Bible, but they've been preconditioned the wrong way in legalism. This was a liberating message. God needed to open their understanding with his Holy Spirit and his truth. Verse 40. Therefore, take heed. Now he gives them a warning. Therefore, take heed. 
Take heed. I'm warning you. I gave you the truth. I told you the truth about Jesus. I told you the truth about how to be saved, how to earn forgiveness, how to know God. Don't be deceived. I'm going to warn you now. And he's going to quote from Habakkuk, their Old Testament, the same warning. Don't have a hardened heart. Don't shut down this message of God's grace. Don't do it. Therefore, take heed so that the thing spoken of in the prophets, Habakkuk, may not come upon you and you be cursed, resisting the grace of God. Habakkuk said, behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Don't be hard hearted. Don't reject the gospel today. This is a stern warning. God calls them scoffers, those who don't believe. You're a scoffer and you will perish. You will die in your sins and you will go to hell forever in torment. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Paul meant. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. This warning is for you. Before I became a Christian, this warning was for me. People told me this before I got saved. You need to repent. The wrath of God abides on you. You can be rescued. Believe in him and his grace. Well, that's the gospel message. So we're going to pick up next week and see how the people responded. That mixed audience. And there's a mixed response. And in light of this, now we're going to go into the privilege we have now of having communion. And it's totally appropriate that we go into communion having just talked about an extensive exposition of the gospel, which Paul called the good news, the message of salvation, the forgiveness of sin. If you're a Christian here today, you are invited and welcome to participate in communion. I'm going to ask that the ushers now begin actually passing out the elements of uh, the bread and the cup. And as it comes your way, just go ahead and grab it and hold on to it in just a second. And then we'll partake together. And even during that time, I'm going to give you a, a minute or two just to meditate in your own heart about the gospel and how it applies to you. How God was so gracious to enable you, enable me to believe the gospel. Recognizing that we were sinful, we needed a savior. It's a time for you to intimately worship God, to thank him, to praise him. It's also communion is a time to reflect in your own heart and confess your sin to God. And so that's another thing I'm going to give you a minute or two to do. And in light of that, listen carefully as the elements are being passed out here. Listen to David in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we saw a reference to David today in Acts 13 that God loved David. God had a job for David. The Messiah would come through the loins of David. Yet David, he was a frail sinner. And so we can identify with Psalm 32. Listen to what David wrote. Probably after he had, boy, he had done a lot of wrong. He had committed adultery many times. Unfaithful to his original bride. Tried to hide it one time with Bathsheba. For he almost he tried to hide his sin of adultery for almost a year. And so he's writing about that experience here of how guilt was pressing down upon him when he's trying to hide his sin from people around him, but mostly trying to hide it from God, and yet God knows everything. So this is a, a psalm or a prayer of confession. A Christian or a believer, I should say, who is broken over their sin, realizes the damage that sin does in their own life and the lives of people around them. So it's very somber at the beginning, but it ends in verse 10, 11 with words like joy, rejoicing. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. There is forgiveness, restoration, cleansing, renewed joy, renewed praise in the forgiven sinner through believing in the gospel of God. So this is totally appropriate for us. So I'll just, I'll read it and then we'll go ahead and take communion. Verse 1 of Psalm 32. How blessed is he, how blessed is the one. For us it's, how blessed is every Christian. Or maybe it's somebody who's not a Christian becomes a Christian. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the one whom the Lord, Yahweh, does not impute iniquity. He doesn't remember your sin and hold it against you. And whose spirit there is no deceit. Do you ever have thoughts about 
some gross, ugly sin that you did in the past. And when you think about it, it just kind of makes you cringe and it makes you feel guilt. This verse is very specific. How blessed it is when the Lord does not impute your iniquity. He doesn't hold that against you. In other words, he doesn't remember your sin. That's awesome. That is cause for rejoicing. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, I tried to hide my sin. My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Guilt, guilt, guilt. Verse 4, for day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, literally, my physical strength was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But I acknowledge my sin to you finally, God. That's what you need to do. And my iniquity, I, I didn't hide anymore. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Amen. In the synagogue, they said amen at the appropriate time. Let me read that verse again. You ready? I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you, God, in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the ways in which you should go. I will count you with my eye upon you. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous one, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart, forgiven of your sins because of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. With that in your mind, just take a moment or two right now in your own heart, pray to the Lord, thank him for forgiveness of sin, confess your sin to him, and then in just a moment we'll partake together. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.